Um, we're just making a quick jaunt through some, uh, some high points maybe in Isaiah so that we, uh, as we prepare our hearts for the Advent season, which I think is now seven weeks away, because I said eight last week. So, um, but my math could have been bad last week is the issue. But I think seven weeks away from that, the uh, Advent. Um, so we're uh, going to go uh, through these high points in Isaiah. Last week we talked about the, the key idea there was behold your God and how beholding God is, is, um, is the solution and uh, the answer to those things which ail or affect the, the, the human heart. We're going to continue in a similar vein uh, the, this morning. Uh, I think that, that this series, at least these first two, come at a, at a good point for us, a good intersection for us, as some of us may be dealing with things that are, that are struggle, as some of us may be dealing with things that are difficult. Uh, Isaiah has gotten, uh, in a certain sense, kind of uh, past the earlier part of, part of this, this prophecy to the children uh, of Israel, uh, the earlier part where, where he's announcing condemnation, announcing, you know, uh, some of the more hardcore stuff that prophets have to do. Now he's kind of moved on to encouraging them, at least in these these last two, and he's going to encourage their their hearts. And so last week his encouragement was, "Behold your God. He is this God. He's this kind of God, and he has this kind of power, and he does this kind of thing. And everything's going to be all right if you put your faith and trust in, in this God." And so he's going to again this week begin in in verse. Uh, one of chapter 42 by saying, "Behold, my servant." Behold is a is going to be a consistent idea from last week and this week. Actually, if we went back to the latter part of chapter 41, uh, what we would encounter there is also a behold. Verse 29 says, "Behold, they are all delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind." That is. Um, that is Isaiah talking about the idols. And so we need to hold in, in our head uh, the idea that Isaiah is going to be responding to an idea that he introduces in chapter 41, which is this, is that though the people are always prone to idolatry, although they're always prone to worship things that are, which are not Yahweh, which are not the God of Scripture, they're prone. Remember, these are the people who built themselves a golden calf and decided to worship it because Moses was gone for a little while. He, in chapter 41, Isaiah is going to ask them to behold those idols. And he says, behold those idols. The uh, 41, the bulk of it is made up uh, of that. He tells them to behold themselves. Behold, you are nothing, and your work is less than nothing. Behold yourself. In verse 29, behold, they are all a delusion. He's referring to idols. And so we have to hold in our mind or, or have in our mind this idea that now Isaiah is going to respond uh, likewise, saying, now that you have beheld those idols that are all delusion, whose works are nothing, their metal images are empty wind, they're just nothing. Now Isaiah is going to say this, behold my servant whom I uphold my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a, fainting uh, a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait 
for his law. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and the spirit to, and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light to the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name and my glory. I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Here's going to begin. It's a, it's a two-section uh, thing. In the first section, he's going to talk about the servant. In the second section, he's going to talk to the servant. But we're going to start with, with talking about the servant. He's going to say, behold, again, the reason he says behold, you need to understand, is he's going to contrast what came before, the empty, useless idols, with what is coming now. You've beheld the idols. They're all delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. Now, though, behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. The idea is that now that you've seen the uselessness of the idols, open up your eyes and see that which is that which is not useless, that which is powerful, that which is amazing. Behold this servant. The servant is unnamed here. Um, unnamed for, for several reasons. Uh, one is that he is going to have a name in, in the future, but that name is not yet known to the children uh, uh, of Israel. It's not known to, to God's people. And so he's unnamed here so as to say that there is coming a servant who is the, the ultimate servant, the, the, the preeminent servant, the, the, the greatest representation of what God's servant would be. That is the idea that's being communicated. There is a servant coming who will be a servant like no other, right? And we get, with the hindsight of living 2,000 and some years after Jesus has appeared on the earth, we get the hindsight of being able to name that servant by name. We get the hindsight of being able to look at Isaiah and say, this is the prophet Isaiah speaking the words of Yahweh to make clear that there is coming a servant and that servant's name would be Jesus. They don't yet know his name, and so he's unnamed here. But the idea here and what they're speaking of and the reason even why as a literary device Isaiah uses no name is because prophetically speaking he is preparing people for the ultimate representation of this servant, the ultimate representation of, those who of the one who would come and reflect this. So behold my servant. We get to speak his name. They got to look forward to the promise that there was coming a, a servant. And, and he is unnamed here because the name was not yet known to them. But behold my servant, in contrast to those, those idols, whom I uphold. The, the, the idols were nothingness. They're, they're, they're clanging when we went to um, Art Prize yesterday. We didn't really see a lot of art. We kind of went from food truck to food truck with the, with the kids. But on the way back to the bus, because one of my kids was tired and wanted to go, go home, we passed a sculpture which we actually stopped and looked at. And it was a cool sculpture. It was a tree, and there's water coming down. And the tree comes off the leaves, and the tree goes to the next set. Or the, the water comes off the leaves and goes to the next set of leaves. And it was cool. It's like, that's a cool sculpture. And we beheld for a moment that sculpture. What we did not do at any point was worship 
that sculpture. And yet what Isaiah is saying is you guys are worshiping like an art prize project. It doesn't have any power. It sat there, and it may have even looked pretty or cool, but it could not do anything. Yet, behold the servant. So his contrast is, behold my servant whom I uphold. God has him in his hand. He is God's chosen servant. The father has chosen, now we can say and understand, the son, his servant, whom he upholds. He is his chosen, in whom his soul delights. Now, because we look back with hindsight, we go, well, the servant is Jesus. So obviously his soul delights in him. That is true, but God did not have to choose a servant in whom his soul delights. God, at various times in history, has used people for his own devices and his own purpose, whom he did not delight in. He had used Pharaoh in the past to do and accomplish his will. His soul did not delight in Pharaoh and in Pharaoh's activities. But this one, the chosen one, is the delight of the soul of the Father. His soul delights in him. His spirit is upon him. This is God's spirit-filled servant. This is God's chosen servant. This is God's delightful servant. And he said, he will bring forth the justice to the nations. We hear justice predominantly in our time in the sense of well, several ways. Uh, I don't think usually in our, our current time that we typically go first to a courtroom scene, right? When the convicted uh, are convicted, when the convicted are tried and they are declared guilty, they receive justice, or the, the victims of the crime receive justice for, for that crime. I think a lot more in our time, and, and this might just be me because of, uh, of pastoring, but when we use justice, a lot of times we mean social justice, which means uh, help for the poor, um, food for the hungry, and that kind of thing. But the meaning here, the first meaning here, although that second meaning comes in, the first meaning here is courtroom justice. And again, it's an allusion back to chapter 41. The idea is that there is a that the gods, the fake gods, the gods who are just clanging uh, uh, symbols, the gods who are just just metal, the gods whose works are nothing, they are the ones on trial here. It's an illusion back. And so when it says he is the one who will bring forth justice, first off, he brings it forth. It's a prophecy to the people saying to them, you are not going to go out and discover for yourself the justice that is being brought, but rather the God that is, that is bringing forth the justice, the servant will bring it forth. It is going to be divinely revealed to you, or it's going to be revealed to you through the servant. We understand because we know the servant's name that it is the divine revelation of justice. But the idea here then is that the servant comes and he brings forth justice. He acts then as a judge who puts the other, the, the, the false gods, the idols, on trial. And by who he is and what he does, and because of his preeminent existence, because he is the ultimate example of what the servant should be, because he is the full example of what the servant should be, because he is God's chosen, upheld by the Father's hands, empowered by the Spirit, his justice is being brought forth to say that there are no other gods who are worthy to be worshipped. He is demonstrating by his existence that he and he alone is the worthy one. 
one. He is the one who is, is worthy to be worshipped. He is the one who rightly should be worshipped. He is the one who puts an end to all false gods. That is the sense in which justice is spoken there. It's an allusion back to the false gods of 41. And then because we get that truth, the other ideas of justice come through, right? Because the nations are held down, and the nations are oppressed, and the nations are poor, and the nations are hungry, but the ultimate reason those things are true is because their false gods are allowed to roam and be active freely until the true one comes and says, no, I bring my justice forth. I and I alone judge you not to be gods, only I. Right? His justice establishes that there are no other gods who are worthy to be worshipped. His justice is a, is a fulfillment uh, of, of the courtroom scene uh, of 41, where the, where the, the false gods are, gods are put on trial. And he, through his, his person and through his existence and through his work as the servant, through his, through his chosen nature as God's own, the delightful one to God, he is the one who declares the verdict upon the false gods alluded to in 41. And as so, he brings divine justice forth to the nations, right? Because no matter what we, we do, and we are, a, um, we are a congregation who believes in things like social justice, right? We do believe that poverty is an issue that has systemic causes, and we do believe that it is God would want us rightly to love our neighbor and feed and care for our neighbor. We believe in all of those things, and yet the greatest thing oppressing our neighbor is that they are beholden to a false God if they do not know and they have not met Jesus. That is the ultimate oppression because a fed mouth will do nothing to heal a broken soul apart from this one referred to in, in chapter 42, verse 1. Verse 2 says this. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. The idea is simply this. That, and, and it's a similar idea that we might get in Philippians chapter 2 uh, where, where it speaks to Jesus. The idea is that Jesus does not have to go about, or the servant did not have to go about the street going, I declare that I am he. I, he doesn't have to lift up his voice. Where again, uh, this is the, um, the, the easiest time, I think, sometimes for preachers and comedians on late night TV shows is election season, right? We're in election season. Again, what do people do in election season? They campaign, right? And you campaign to be elected or you campaign to be chosen as, as the one, right? And so... Uh, currently, we have on one side like 75 people running for one of the nominations, and then I think we have like two and a half running on the other, the other side. And what are they all doing? They're kind of lifting up their their voices. The idea here is that the servant does not campaign. He has no need of a campaign because there will be no election, right? The, the idea is, is, is that the servant does not need to be elected and that the universe does not work on, on, um, on as a representative republic or a democracy like we live in. Like, hey, the servant, if he goes out there and gets enough votes, we know he's the best. And if people will just throw their weight behind the servant and give a vote. Then the servant can be active. Then the, ser the servant doesn't need to campaign. He does not lift up his voice. He doesn't cry out in the street. Look at me. He doesn't need to. He will not be elected. 
He's been chosen. By the Father's hand, he's been appointed. And he does not need to go out and ask for your vote. That's an important, important point that you should remember all of the time. This one, this chosen one, has no need of your election, though you are desperately in need of his. Going on, he will not cry, lift up his voice, or make it heard in the street. He's not campaigning. He's chosen. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged. Here's, here's the idea, is that God is sending his chosen one, the chosen servant who is upheld by his hand, in whom his soul delights. The spirit is upon him. He's going to bring forth justice to the nations. And part of his justice, right, we talked about this last week, he's rewarding, he brings recompense, but he's also going to bring the kind of justice that says to evil, you have no right to exist. And he brings about its destruction. And sometimes then we think of one who is this powerful, this grand, and this great, and we think, will I not then be overwhelmed by him? Will I not then be overrun by him? Will he have time to think of me? Yet this servant, this grand, this powerful, this amazing, the ultimate representation of what the servant of the living God should be, this one, a bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. I can't think of two smaller examples than a bruised reed or a faintly burning wick, right? It doesn't say, you know, like a, a giant torch or a, it's a, it's a burning wick. It's on, on a candle. Have you ever lit a, a candle? We've all lit candles, and we watch as they burn down, and sometimes there's just not, you're trying to get one going, and it won't. It's a tiny little example, and yet here he is, this servant, this righteous judge of the nations, this, this one who has the spirit of the living God upon him, the, this chosen one, this delight of the Father's heart, will not break a bruised reed. And he's not going to quench a, a burning wick. Here's, here's the idea, then, is that there is indeed a giant God. We talked about that last week. Behold your God. That that giantness of that God meets the tininess of who we are, right? And sometimes I think part of our problem is, is we get it confused. We've got big us and tiny God. But big us will do nothing but continue to destroy our own lives and mess our own lives. We, we become so big in our own eyes that, that we're the center of our universe. In fact, we are the gods of our universe. And yet, yet if, we, if we understand it right and we get to the bottom of what Scripture is saying is that there's a big God, much bigger than you can comprehend, much bigger than you can understand, much bigger than you can contain, much bigger than you can control, much bigger than, than, than you can sit down and you could put pen to paper and write and describe for year upon year after year after year after year of what you know about this God. And you will not even have scratched the very surface of who this God is. He is much bigger than what you understand. That's why last week we beheld this big God. At one point, I, I was remember studying last week, and, and the, this description of him was so awesome, I couldn't, I was trying to be preachery and give you like one, uh, one word things, but I couldn't describe him. The only word I could put for this description of this God was awesome. And now 
not in the cheap way in which we use it now. Like, hey, that's awesome. But no, awesome. Like, it causes so much awe. It's like fall on your face. Hide yourself from this one. The awe that it inspires is the kind that takes your breath away, sometimes literally, right? The view of this one could knock you dead, knock you out, destroy you, take you apart. This God is awesome. We beheld that God. And in beholding him, we should have noticed that he is big. And we are small. And then we should ask the question, then if this big God is this big, this amazing, this powerful, this uncontainable, can that big God have anything to do with little me? That is why last week we beheld our God, and this week we behold his servant. Because in beholding his servant, we understand how it is that a big God can come and love on little us. It's in his servant. Behold the servant. He is the link. He is the one. He is the, he is the, um, he is the path. He is the, the bridge. He is, he is the, the, the one who carries us between that big God and little us is this servant. Behold. And, and it tells us that this, this the servant of the big God the servant of the big God, the ultimate representation of what a servant of the big God should be is the one who will not, who will not break a bruised reed. And he's not going to put out your little tiny flickering candle. But he's going to faithfully bring forth justice. He's going to come to you and he's going to carry out the restoration. This is again, it's the, that use of justice. Again, it's multifaceted. He's going to reveal who is the real God, but also he's going to wipe out all the false gods. And also they would have understood because they had a keen sense of, of oppression that he's going to put an end to the oppression that is oppressing you. He will faithfully bring forth justice, not justice that you sought, not justice that you, that you found, not justice that you studied until you got. He will faithfully bring it forth. Because he's the servant of the Most High. Behold the servant, his, his, his role, his duty, his, his, his character is such that he is bringing forth the justice. And in the justice, that means also freedom for you. And we'll get to that in a minute. He will not grow faint or be discouraged. It's a reference back to this. This servant, the, you and I, we both grow both faint and discouraged. It's a reference back to, to, the, to the bruised reed and the faintly burning wick. But here he is. He will not grow faint like a, like a, like a wick burning out. He will not grow discouraged like a bruised reed. He, he will come to us and he comes to the faint and the broken as one who cannot be broken and cannot be discouraged. In other words, his plan he will carry out. There is nothing that can stop the amazing unfolding plan of this, this servant. He will not grow faint or be discouraged until he has established justice in the earth. In the coastlands, wait for his law. I don't know if you remember the last time we, we were in uh, the first part of Isaiah. My favorite, my favorite passage in that is when it talks about the work of the Lord going forth. And it talks about the word of the Lord going forth. And it talks about how there comes a time in the future when so many people will be flocking into Zion. In other words, the, 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 from the ends of the earth, people will come and they will want to worship the God of Zion. And how will they worship him? It says there will be so many coming to him that there will be like a river flowing up hill, 
like a river flowing up the mountain. That's how many will, will come to him. The same idea is going to be established here. He is going to establish his justice, right? Again, justice, he's going to establish that he is the only God. And this is the only true servant. Where will he establish it? In the earth. And he says this, in the coastlands, wait for his law. Right? His law, meaning his rule, his kingship, his, his, his way. Right? We were created to live for a purpose. We were created to live in a way. We were made for something. And that something was to live for God the Father. And we were made for the garden. And yet sin got us all kicked out of the garden. And so the earth has been thrown into chaos. And what goes on all around us is not good. You can pick up the newspaper and what you will read uh, in the newspaper, uh, if you're old like me and you, I don't pick up a newspaper. I use pick up a newspaper, I read it online. But you can't say you can pick up a computer. It doesn't make sense. But you can pick up uh, a, a magazine, a newspaper, an article online. Right? You could open that. You could go to any site. Go to CNN. Go to, uh, go to any news site and, and look at it. And what you will discover most days when you read on there is that there is an alarming lack of God's law being out in our society. Right? So two weeks ago or a week ago, there's a, there's a mass shooting at a college, at Yupaka Community College. Do you think that the, that the families of the people killed at Yupaka Community College long for God's law? They might not even know that they do. But his law says, I mean, are not the, the Ten Commandments and any other explication of the law of God clear that it is wrong to murder? You shall not murder. Don't do it. And yet, we live in a place where God's law is flouted, ignored, and to the detriment of all the people. There was another shooting over the weekend. Only two people were killed. Do you think they long for God's law? There are neighborhoods all over the city. Last night on the west side of Grand Rapids, a 21-year-old was run over by a car, and it was intentional because he had gotten into a fight with the people inside the car. Now, that is amazing unrest. You don't know what kind of connections, but do you think that at the end of the day, when the people driving the car end up in jail, when the person in, uh, who got ran over is laying in the hospital bed, that they do not long for the law of God? This is chaos. This existence, this place we are, this planet, and these humans, apart from the law of God, it's complete and total chaos. And anybody who tells you that a life apart from the law of God is better is lying to themselves, because I have never met a person whose family member is dying of some disease ushered in by sin, a breaking of God's law. I have never met a person who does not long for their life, but life is at the heart of the law, and death is at the heart of the breaking of the law, and you can show it again and again and again to the addicted, to the drunk, to the abusers, to the abused, to neighborhoods all over Grand Rapids where poverty is systematically or systemically allowed to reign 
so that those who are in poverty now will have children who will grow up and probably be raised in poverty later who will also raise children who are in poverty because our system is designed to allow that and because they do not know a way out to those people who, who live in, in a world where, uh, where we might say, well, there's no racism. We have a black president. I say tell that to, to the victims of various brutality. Tell that to the victims of various hate groups, right? To the terrorism that is going on yesterday in um, yesterday there was a there was a bombing in Turkey, right? There was a protest going on and behind that a bomb exploded, an act of terror. Uh, 183 people, I think, hurt, over 21 killed. They might not know it, but the longing of their heart is for God's law and God's law to be established. We think of God's law like rules. It is not His rules it is his rule and he is a good kind and benevolent king and his ways are the right ways and to live in the right way is the better way and the better way is the great way and to live under the rule and the reign of this living god is a better place and all of us whether we know it or not were created for it and here they are the coastlands in this passage longing for it. the coastlands in, in in this time when isaiah says that they're the farthest reaches of the earth the finest reach, they're too far away. They're so far, but even they, they're out there and they've never heard of this God, Yahweh. That is his name. They've never heard this name. They've never heard it spoken, and yet they are living in a place where they're disconnected from the rule, the law of God, and they long for the establishment of his justice, his rule, and his reign. They long for it. There is, by the way, nothing more beautiful than being in the coastlands. We talk about this often, but I, you know, one of my favorite things to do is to, when I'm in the, in the Philippines and I speak at a conference that, that they do in um, a place called Naspate, you have to take, originally we had to take a bus, then we had to take a boat, and we had to take all this, but they built a, a runway that's about three feet long that they land a little jet on, um, <laughs> which is a fun, a fun experience. It's actually, it's 500 feet long, and uh, if the pilot can't stop, he has to pull up right away. Otherwise, you're going back into the ocean. It's a tiny uh, little island, and landed there, and then we drive down to a place called Mobo Beach, or Mobo, and then we, we do a conference on Gold Beach. There's nothing like singing the praises of God with people who are singing in languages you do not understand, because at this conference, often I would speak in English. My friend Lim would translate that into Tagalog. My friend Pastor Pete would take the Tagalog, put it into Cebuano, and my other friend would take the Cebuano and put it into Maspateño. It was like five languages. And so then when we would sing together, we would sing and we would be singing stuff that I didn't always understand except for the joy that was, was going on. And you have to understand the setting. So the setting is in the middle of the, of the, um, uh, in the middle of the, of the ocean, uh, wrapped around by, um, by ocean, I'm not sure what sea that is. It's South China Sea on the other side, but this is the the sea comes in into this this bay, and it's um, it's there's an island here, and then there's another island, and in between it, there's just this deep recess of of ocean because it's formed by volcanic stuff and all, all that. And you see all day the fishermen go up and up and down this, and you can watch it. But there's these palm trees and and all this. And I said to Pastor Pete. Once, while we were there, I said, do you know that this is like the American definition of paradise, right? Because you're like, there's a beach, and there's palm trees, and there's this beautiful ocean, right? So I've been into that place, and here's what I, what I realized. 
is that those are the coastlands, right? In, in the writings and the understandings of, of the person who Isaiah, that's the coastlands. And I'm there with brothers in Christ, singing the good news about Jesus, maybe in languages I don't get, maybe in ways I don't understand, but here we are singing praise to Jesus in the coastlands. Why? Because prophecy comes true. Because the prophetic works of, words of Isaiah are a fact. And, and in that place, it's amazing to stand in the close lands and realize that God's word is true. That the word and the establishment of the work of the servant and his law and his reign is coming even to the coastlands, right? And I say that because we oftentimes think only of our little place. But honestly, from where they were in Isaiah to here, we're probably coastlands too. We're just not near as pretty, right? It's not near. But this is like, look at the reach of, of, of here. And so we sit here and we testify to the goodness of the one. And yet we would acknowledge at the, at the same time, do we not long for a full coming of the establishment of his law? Right? We, we use that word as if it's bad, and yet I think if we really work through that, we would all love to see the law of the Lord established here. And that's his promise. Verse 5, thus says God the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to people on it in the spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord or I am Yahweh. I have called you in righteousness. So now, in the first verses, he was speaking of the servant. Now he's going to speak to the servant, right? I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness, right? We know he's, he's the ultimate servant because he's called in righteousness. The thing about the rest of us is apart from him, we have none, right? Isn't that what Scripture says? All our righteousness is as filthy rags, it says in the New Testament. Consider that because we get it backwards. It does not say all our good work, all our bad things are as filthy rags. It says all our righteousness, all our good stuff, all the things we think we do great are but filthy rags. So here he calls, I have called you in righteousness, in the righteousness of the Father, and the righteousness of the servant. I will take you by the hand and I will keep you. And then he says this, I will give you as a covenant for the people. The servant, then, is the central gift given to the people. We take communion each week. We don't often do it. Um, if we did it as, as, in a more corporate way, historically the way uh, we do that is we would pass it, and I would read from Scripture, and I would say, this is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink in remembrance of me. Jesus himself said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus himself, the servant himself, is the covenant for the people. He is the promise for the people. He is the, he is the, he is the, the, the agreement between the Father and us is Jesus. And it's a good thing that Jesus is, is the agreement between the Father and us because we can make no agreement and enter into no agreement with the Father. We have no righteousness to bring. We have nothing he considers uh, uh, that, that, that would make him consider us. There's no amount of good work or no amount of money or no amount of, of, of fundraising or friendraising or, 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 or good work doing that would make the Father incline his heart towards us, but rather the Son who is the new covenant. The servant's the new covenant. He is the one who, 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 um, who becomes the mediator 
of the covenant. Not only is he the mediator of the covenant, the one who helps win it, he is that covenant. The son is the reason that we can come to the father. The servant is the reason we can behold our God. I will give you the father says to the servant, as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to do what? To open eyes that are blind, to bring prisoners out from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. He's a good God who is going to bring about good things. And the way he is doing that is through his servant. And his servant is the covenant because his servant is, 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 is the only mediation between us and him. In other words, there's no way for us to get to and fully behold the Lord God in a way that we could do it so that scripture says we are friends of God. It took the servant to do that. He is the mediator of that covenant. But not only is he the mediator, he is the covenant. He is the promise. He is the answer. He is the hope. He is the light for the nations. He is the opener of blind eyes. He's the one who is going to open the doors of prisons and bring us out of dungeons. I don't know if we always realize that sometimes we don't have a, an accurate view of just how deep of trouble we are in apart from Christ and apart from the servant. But we were dungeon dwellers, no hope. And here he is, he is the key that opens the door of the dungeon. And yet the reality is if he came just to the, just to the edge of the, of the dungeon and we dwelled in darkness and unlocked the door, we would stay in the dungeon because there's no light and we couldn't see our way and we wouldn't even, the problem with us as humans is we have what's called Stockholm Syndrome. We have begun to identify with our captor and we have begun to think of our dungeons as palaces. We have begun to think of, of the refuse we eat as, as a feast. That is us. And so when he comes to open the doors of the dungeons, he opens them, but we would still stay. If he did not descend the stairs to us, if he did not wrap his arms around us, if he did not carry us out, we never would have made it out of the dungeon had the servant not brought us out. He not only unlocks the door, but he goes into the dungeon. He supplies the light. He is setting the prisoners free. In scripture, sometimes we like to identify with the good guys. Please do not. You in this passage are the prisoner. You are the dungeon dweller. You are the one who needs to be set free. You are at the bottom of the dungeon stairs and but that the servant would descend the stairs of humanity, descend the stairs of this life we've lived, descend the stairs that led him up the hill to the cross. If the servant had not come in to your dungeon and carried you out, you would have died in your dungeon thinking that you lived in a, in a palace amongst refuse and dung and destruction. But the servant came. Then he says this, I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. That is my name. My glory I will give to no other. Nor my praise to carved idols. So the servant comes and he rescues people. 
And many of us here, we know this servant. We've met him. We don't refer to him as the servant. We refer to him as Jesus. He's the fulfillment, the direct fulfillment of, of, of this passage, the, the truest fulfillment of this passage. He is the physical representation of our God when he comes as the servant to rescue us. We know him by name, and I think most of us know this Jesus. And, and if you don't know this Jesus, I desperately want you to meet him. The servant, his name is Jesus. He descended the stairs of the dungeon into humanity, died upon a cross. He carries us out of the dungeon. He can do that for you as well. I desperately want you to know that. But because of that, understand this. He is Yahweh. He is the Lord. That is his name. His glory he will give to no other. He's deserving of glory. Why? Because he is the one who was beheld. He spread the earth and made it to be. He spoke the, the words and the trees were. He spoke the words and the clouds came. He spoke the words and the galaxies were. Remember the ten octillion stars that he knows by name? He spoke and they were. He has done that. Not only has he done that, but he made us. He placed Adam and Eve in a garden and he walked with them in the cool of the day. But we decided to run. We decided to sin. We decided to say, we don't need his law. We decided to run away. We decided to willingly enter into the prison. We walked into the dungeon. We walked into the darkness. And he was not content to let us be. So not only did he make the planet, behold your God, but he sent the servant, behold his name is Jesus, to rescue you and I from the dungeon, to take us out of darkness, bring us into light, to make himself the covenant. We will celebrate communion soon. We will take the bread, put it into the wine, and that will be the new covenant in his blood shed for us. Because of that, he is the glorious one. He is the honorable one. He is the shoutable one. Behold your God. He and he alone, but not only that, you would have no opportunity to shout, save in the end day on your way to destruction. If it were not for this, not only is he the maker, he's the rescuer, he's the rewarder, he's bringing recompense, right? He sent his servant the servant descended the stairs into humanity, died upon the cross to rescue you, to restore you to, to mediate for you a friendship with that God. He is the covenant. And because he is the covenant, he is the one who has opened prison doors. He's the one who's brought us out of the dungeon. He's turned on the lights. He's established his law. He's established his rule. He, and he alone because of that, gets the glory. He, and he alone gets the honor. He, and he alone, gets the praise. You should read that both as a dire warning and an amazing word of glory, of joy. That, that should give you both joy and fear because of two things. One, your God is glorious. To worship him, to sing to him. What, what, I read a quote from... Uh, from Spurgeon this morning, and he said, there's no greater duty than to learn to sing the praises of God. 
right? We get to sing praises to this God. We get to know this God. We get to pray to this God. We get to ask this God, and this God responds to us like he doesn't ignore your prayers. He doesn't not hear. He hears your prayers. When you're broken, he doesn't break you more, but he repairs you. He restores you. He he reclaims you. A, A bruised reed he will not break. Uh, a flickering wick he's not going to put out that's what he does and, and, and given that you should live in joy he is the glorious one but you should also live in fear because you and I are glory hogs though we know this God many of us we desire the glory that he gets though we know this king we desire the rule that he has Though we know that he saved us, we want his salvation, but not his way often. We want to bring to ourselves what is due him. And so the warning that I give people all the time is this, is that the God of Scripture is in the business of destroying idols. He is not going to share his glory with any other. That is a dire warning to us as humans who often try to usurp and take the glory of this God. And so we gave you the other part. Remember, fill your heart with it, soak in it, meditate in it, and understand the work of the servant. Behold the servant and behold the God and put your faith in him and give the glory to him. But beware the moment when you try and take the glory back for yourself. Beware the moment when you choose a different God. Right? You go, I wouldn't do that. How would I do that? I wouldn't. The children of Israel (laughs) had been fed by God, kept by God. They'd heard from God. Moses goes away for a few minutes and they try and make a new God out of metal. Do not think for a moment that you are any different. Do not give up for a moment the idea that the second you get an opportunity, your heart will start to manufacture, won't start to manufacture new gods and new things to worship. The human heart is an idol factory. It's been said again and again in history. The human heart is an idol factory. The human heart is an idol factory. Right? The problem with most of us is, is that if we want to see the truest nature the, the truest representation, the exact imprint of the God we worship is that we don't find him in Jesus and we don't find him in Scripture. We find him in our mirror. You should read what it was said there with great joy, but as a dire warning, God is not looking to share his glory with you. I am the Lord. I'm Yahweh. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, and my praise, not my praise, to carved idols. You should hear what was said, and let it drive you back to beholding your God and beholding his servant. We're going to get another behold in verse 9. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and the new things I now declare, before they spring forth, I tell you of them. What an awesome thing it is to live in a point of history that you know the name of the servant. You know the work of the servant. You get to worship the servant by name. You get to understand his glorious acts. You get a record written of what he's done. You get to pray directly to the servant by name, and he not only mediates your salvation, but he mediates your prayer. 
right? You get to go directly to God. That's one of the joys of being who we are. We do not have to go, like, I am not a priest in, in, the, in that technical sense. You do not have to come to me so I can mediate your confessions, so that I can mediate your prayers. You don't have to go to a saint. You don't have to go to anybody whose name is not Jesus. He is the mediator of a covenant. You get to speak his name. He is not only the mediator, he is the covenant. Jesus is the good news. He is the gospel. He is that servant. You get to pray to him. And when they read that verse, or when they heard Isaiah say it, and then it was written down, and afterwards it was read, before Jesus appeared, they, they, could, they could read that as a hope. They could read that as a truth, but they couldn't claim it by a name. You get to claim it by a name. His name is Jesus. He is the servant of the Most High. He is, as Hebrews said, the exact imprint of his nature. He is, as Philippians says, one who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. He didn't have to because he had it. He is the Son of the Most High. He is the second person of the Trinity. He is God of very God. The Son, Jesus, the servant. The one who is the covenant. And you get to know him. They, didn't to, they got to read those verses. You get to read those verses with a name. May you and I go deeper and deeper and deeper into this servant. May we seek him. May we do everything it takes to behold him so that it would take our eyes off from beholding us. Because his glory is not shareable. Let's seek the servant. Behold your God. Behold his servant. His name is Jesus, and he has come to set you free, to establish his rule, to establish his kingdom, and to be a covenant for you so that you can be friends with God. Behold his glory. Pray with me. Jesus, may we...